I'm Farah Duro, and you're listening to the PCS Revolution Podcast. The PCOS Revolution podcast is supported by Florida Complete Wellness, providing integrative women's health care for nearly two decades. To sign up for your free consultation from anywhere in the world or to get more information on our brand new practitioner training program, visit us at floridacompletewellness.com. Well, hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on the PCOS Revolution podcast. I am honored and humbled to have with me today one of the most inspiring visionaries in women's health and someone whose work I followed for nearly 20 years. She's not only a three-time New York Times bestselling author of books such as Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom, The Wisdom of Menopause, and Goddesses Never Age, The Secret Prescription for Radiance, Vitality, and Well-Being, but she's also a board-certified OBGYN and has currently also released a book entitled Dodging Energy Vampires, which offers radical upstream medicine. You'll see today why she's known as a rebel rock star and authority on what can go right with the female body and was personally my biggest influence when I decided to really grab my hormonal imbalances by the horns and become a reproductive doctor of oriental medicine after reading her book, uh, Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom in the late 90s. Today, we're going to delve deep into the false belief that PCOS is incurable, and we're going to tap into some of the biggest myths regarding women's health. Whether you're a practitioner or have PCOS yourself, you definitely don't want to miss this. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Christiane Northrup. Oh, what a pleasure. I, I love hearing about, you know, when you're doing the pioneering work that I did, which I call climbing an unmarked peak with no light in the dark. Uh, but then when you come along, it's like you're putting in landscape lighting and marking the trail. And it's just very exciting for me. So thank you for the work you're doing. And I, uh, I share sometimes this story. It's on our website that I actually got hit in the head with a pack of birth control pills when I was 19 years old. <laughs> so I literally, oh it was flung at me. And I said, I just can't figure out what to do. I can't take this stuff. It doesn't work for me. And a friend of mine gave me a copy of your book uh, that very same week. She saw me in tears. She said, I think you need to read this, you know, and uh, Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom. And 900 page book. I read it cover to cover. And Wow. You know, I said, this is, uh, this is, this is what's been missing. It's a missing piece. And so, um, could you just share a little bit about what inspired you to write that for a lot of our listeners who have never uh, heard about the book or read it? Yes. I love doing that. Okay. So here I am and I'm, uh, just finished my residency in Boston, New England medical center. And my cousin calls me and she says, I'm healing my fibroid which is a benign tumor of the uterus that 40% of women have with a macrobiotic diet. And I'm thinking, wow, I mean, I've just finished learning about how to remove the uterus for these. And I didn't know that there was anything you could do. So I met, she introduced me to Michio Kushi, who started the macrobiotic movement in the United States. And I began to sit in with Michio on his individual health consultations using oriental medicine. And by the way, that is what it was called. It doesn't, you know, it's not non-PC to call it oriental medicine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's right. literally what it was called. And there was, and the degree was doctor of oriental medicine. 
And so I watched as Micho would do the kind of medicine that you are now certified in, which is looking at the meridians, looking at uh, how the different organs are functioning, and uh, it's a completely different system. I also saw that within two weeks, people's faces changed, their bodies changed, their health changed just from a change in diet. Now, I grew up in a health-oriented family where my dad was a dentist, his brother and sister were both medical doctors. My parents did yoga, we, we grew up on organic food. Uh, my mother made yogurt to take to my father's patients who were on antibiotics. This was long before anyone was talking about the microbiome. And I had a brother who would have died if my parents hadn't signed him out of the hospital against medical advice. So let's just say that by the age of eight, I was already radicalized in terms of what the medical profession could do and what it couldn't do. So when I went to medical school, I went with the express purpose of finding out, first of all, I thought it was a better degree than a PhD. And I wanted to find out why doctors didn't talk to patients when they didn't know what was going on, because I knew that Western medicine had limitations, but also did some real good. And then I finished my residency in OBGYN. I went to Dartmouth Medical School. I cried when I first saw a baby born. I, was, I found it very moving. So there was nothing else that moved me emotionally. So I finished my training in that. Then I worked with Michio on uh, seeing these people who'd been given up for dead by the medical profession. And then I'd see many of them cure whatever it is they had, they'd go back to their original doctors and the doctors would look at them and say, well, none of this is scientifically proven, which to me was a very unscientific view. If someone has gotten better and you've given them a death sentence and they come in looking wonderful, your job as a doctor and a scientist is to say, what in the world did you do? Because we sure failed you. But that's not what happens generally. And it still is not what happened. Anyhow, then I went on to become a board member of the American Holistic Medical Association, uh, along with Bernie Siegel. And so I had this group of outlier doctors who were my friends. And even there, as I would talk about PMS and what was happening with women, uh, you know, the, the, even the holistic textbooks would, when you'd see cervix or you'd see ovary or you'd see whatever, they, then the, the text would go, see Kundalini, you know, like the energy going up the spine. And I thought, I'm seeing an awful lot of abnormal pap smears and cervical warts in between this and Kundalini energy. So I began, <laughs> I was seeing all this stuff. And back then, Many of my patients with chronic pelvic pain, they would tell me their stories, and almost all of them had been sexually abused. And I began to realize that the illnesses of the female body, fibroid uterus, chronic pelvic pain, menstrual cramps, heavy bleeding, uh, ovarian cancer, ovarian cysts, these were the language that the body used to talk about the distress that the feminine and that women we're experiencing in a patriotic, in a patriotic, in a patriarchal culture. And so I wrote a little article called uh, Honoring Our Bodies for an extinct publication called Women of Power magazine. And from that, I then once stood at my bedside table, and I kid you not, this was in the late 
80s, early 90s. And I said, infinite spirit, show me a sign. Give me the next best use of my gifts and talents. And literally that same day, two hours later, a literary agent called me and said, I think you should write a book. And the only reason I wrote Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom is that I was seeing things. Women were, they were telling me things that I did not learn in my residency. I didn't learn it uh, anywhere. And I knew, just like you said, that this was a missing piece that needed to be articulated and talked about. And that was the beginning of what became this 900-page book, Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom, where I had to invent a language of women's health in a profession in which women's health is just Here's women's health today, okay? We haven't found it yet, but keep coming back because we will. That's women's health. Women's health is pap smears, it's uh, mammograms, it's early detection instead of how do we live? How do we live in such a way as to enhance the experience of being in a female body, despite the fact that since the story of Adam and Eve, we've been told that something is inherently wrong with the female body. The menstrual cycle is the curse. Breasts are just there to get breast cancer or to be augmented with uh, plastic boobs or any of those things. And so and I, I literally had to invent a language, which I did, and that was women's bodies, women's wisdom. That just gave me chills. <laughs> <That's so laughs> story. Uh, I mean, it takes so much courage, I think, to do that. And especially at that, this was, we're talking about the mid to late nineties. I think even, you know, when that book came out, correct? That came out, the first edition was 94. And then the second edition was about 2001, third edition, 2010. <laughs> and I'm working on another edition now. And I think, you know, I just have to bring it up to speed with, because what's happened, which is very exciting, is all of the things, this happens to me so much, and I'll bet it happens to you. All of the things that I thought should be mainstream 20 years ago are finally now making it into the collective unconscious. So the microbiome, you know, the, the fact that we need healthy bacteria in the gut and in the vagina, um, omega-3 fats for the brain, baby formula didn't include these, breast milk has them. All these things, uh, vitamin D, making sure your vitamin D levels are optimal. We finally have the research of things that I knew needed to happen years ago, but I didn't, you know, again, it takes, uh, people should know this, it takes 17 years from the time something really useful clinically is discovered before it actually gets put into practice. And so that has been in a way, my frustration, because the things that I thought should be happening 20 years ago are finally now happening. I mean, I've, I've watched the, I've watched the, the pendulum. It then swung when fetal monitoring came in. I was a resident. I watched the C-section rate climb to 25%. I thought that was too much. And then it's gone up to 30%. Then we started to have a rash of premature births from women getting induced in labor, something we used to do when I was at Dartmouth Medical School and everyone agreed that was a bad idea. And then it became so much more common because women wanted to be able to time their birth. 
which is ridiculous. You, you know, the baby's pituitary and your pituitary in a dance determine the time of birth. What an awful thing that the first choice that a child makes gets subverted by the left hemisphere need to control the time. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so anyway. Yes. And something we face every day, honestly, we just, just yesterday, one of our patients said, well, my doctor says my baby's too big and uh, he, I'm going to have to go and get a C-section oh, at 38 and weeks. what does that do? <laughs> exactly. What does that do? That freezes your pelvis. You've just hexed, you've hexed the woman. Because my grandmother, who was 98 pounds, had two 10-pound babies on her kitchen table in the 1920s because nobody had ultrasound. So they didn't tell her that her pelvis was too small. They would now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. Oh my God. Well, I, I, um, I think that when I was just listening to, you have actually a, a, a an audio uh, version of, I think from a PBS special you did on women's bodies, women's wisdom that I listened yes. to recently. And you, and one of the quotes that you mentioned from the book was that um, to change your biology, you first have to change your beliefs. And I feel yeah. like that is so key because every, every article I read almost about PCOS is that you can't cure it. It's irreversible. It is what it is. You just have to manage it. And I reversed mine. I have patients every day who reverse theirs. So why is this? What What's tied into this belief? And your opinion? Well, okay. So, you know, you know, the old, old saying, if your only tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So here's how OBGYN is set up. It's set up I mean, really, when you think about it, like as an outsider, if you were a medical anthropologist, then you would see that the entire field of OBGYN is controlled by synthetic hormones and by the manufacturers of synthetic hormones. So that so if you have irregular periods and you're let's say you've just gotten your period, you're 14 or so, then what you do to, quote, regulate the period is you don't ask, why is this woman's periodicity, why is her biologic clock not working? What's going on with the hypothalamic pituitary axis, the mind-body connection? No. What you do is you put her on synthetic hormones that mask everything, which I like to say is like putting duct tape over the indicator lights on your dashboard instead of checking under the hood and seeing what's going on. So no doctor is taught anything about nutrition. And worse, for the past 40 years, because of the uh, deliberate, deliberate um, spudging of data, we've been told that sugar is fine and fat is the enemy. So what we've done in the past 40 years is people have gotten fatter and fatter and fatter while believing that a low-fat diet was the way to go, while sugar has gotten higher and higher and higher and insulin levels are higher and higher and higher. So now we have 50% of the po- of the population with diabetes or pre-diabetes. And in the face of excess insulin, the sex hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, are in fact metabolized into additional stress hormones in the face of cortisol that create a very unusual and abnormal situation, which can result in PCOS, polycystic ovarian disease, which is a disease of a hormone imbalance that is, it can only be approached 
as a lifestyle change because it's the end result of insulin resistance and also some stressors from beliefs in the mind and body. Now, do you think that that paradigm is supported by the American College of OBGYN, which in turn is supported by Orthopharmaceutical and Johnson & Johnson? No. The answer there is put the girl on birth control pills because then she doesn't have to think about it. And that really is, and then, you know, we do have the data that uh, birth control pills, if, you, if you're living a high-stress life and if you're apt to get pregnant, um, all of that stuff, then there's a place, there's a time and a place for everything. But unfortunately, we've made that approach, masking the symptoms, putting the duct tape over the indicator light, that is the standard approach. And if you suggest anything else, you're laughed out of the lecture hall. And, and by the way, who's going to support the research of the Organic Farmers Association or brown rice and tofu or whatever diet you do to lower your insulin, where are the big bucks that's going to, that are going to set up that study? Because in order to get a drug, uh, accepted by the FDA, the clinical trials that you need to do just a phase one trial costs over a million dollars. And so as you can see, uh, the vested interest and the money, um, wins, but here's another thing. Uh, you cannot patent a naturally occurring substance. So that's why you, we could make, by the way, we could make birth control pills using bioidentical estrogen and progesterone. It would be easy to do, and they would be much, much safer. But there's no point in doing that because the drug companies can't make any money. So therefore, they make a hormone that is synthetic to the female body. It's not natural to the female body. Every birth control is some kind of synthetic hormone that acts differently in the body than anything that the body itself would ever produce. And so there's no incentive to do anything different in the standard system. I mean, in, in OBGYN, all of the prizes, all of the research, all of it is supported by the pharmaceutical companies. So there you have it. Mm -hmm. And and I remember attending a large medical conference many years ago, international fertility doctors and OBGYNs, and the, it was about a thousand doctors in the room and the presentation was on PCOS. So I was like, oh, this will be great. I'll learn so much. And really it was about first line of birth as birth control and yep. metformin. And if you don't give it, then nobody is going to get better because nobody's willing to change their diet and That's nobody's going to exercise. Right. Yeah. That, good for you. So you've, you've brought up something that that also let's let's um let's pay attention to that belief that belief comes from the training of a doctor in this system because it is very true when you're up in the you're up all night in the emergency room you're seeing the women who are obese who smoke who use drugs who live on diet coke 
if you suggest that maybe there should be dietary change, there that woman will not have any support for dietary change. So I personally have written many prescriptions for birth control pills because I knew darn well this is something the woman would do. And if I didn't prescribe them, she would come back pregnant. And there are women on whom back in the day I did five different abortions. So this has to do with that a woman has to own and operate her own pelvic organs. She's got to be willing to bring her power back behind her own eyes and not be waiting for the doctor, the husband, the priest, society uh, to save her. And this is the crux of all of it. And for whatever reason, you have the soul qualities where you said, wait, I can't do this. My sister had the same soul qualities. My daughters have had the same soul qualities. It's like, are you kidding? I would never take these. But most people aren't asking that question. And the culture does not support asking that question because big food and big pharma are often in bed together. Now that's changing. Dr. Robert Lustig, who's one of my heroes and a pediatrician and also a lawyer and a public health specialist, has written a wonderful book called the um, something of the the something of the American mind, a hacking, hacking of the American mind. And he points out that we have gotten to the point where so many people have diabetes, and it's sequelae, by the way, which is um, heart disease, PCOS, um, high blood pressure, uh, diabetes, retinopathy, all of it. We've gotten to the point where it's costing us so much money to bail people out of these lifestyle things that, by the way, the country of Chile has just banned a whole lot of refined processed foods because they've seen their obesity rate skyrocket. (laughs) So they're taking this into their own hands and they are taxing and banning the kind of high sugar foods and sodas that are causing this obesity epidemic in the first place. And let's be clear, those foods are more addictive than heroin. And so if you're stressed, if you are low income, a bag of cookies can provide an evening of entertainment at a low price or a happy meal or whatever is providing your family with food at a very low price. Now, that's the the front end price. The back end price now for society is becoming unsustainable so that some insurance companies are denying people with diabetes from having coverage. So I think as a society, we are waking up as a society. But what you're doing, what I'm doing, is we are working one-on-one or from our social media with those who are ready for this information. And I think that's our greatest point of strength, unless you are someone who works well within the political system, who works well within a company uh, to try to change the culture of the company, you know, into more healthful things. I've, I've heard that uh, um, Berkshire Hathaway and uh, Amazon, they're working on health insurance plans for their own people, because we're all finding that the cost of health insurance is 
ridiculously high, and we spend more per capita in the United States than any other country in the world for worse health care. Like we have a very high maternal mortality rate and the maternal mortality is a measure of how well you're doing with health. So we're spending all this money and we're not getting anything for it. And so, you know, and I know to get health, you actually have to step outside of the healthcare system to get health. <laughs> Like, don't expect, you know, people say to me, well, that's not covered by my insurance. Well, nothing is except getting hit by a bus. So wake up to that. You know, your health insurance is not going to help you buy health. It will do some disease screening and increasingly it will pay for you to get injected with heavy metals and all kinds of toxins in the form of vaccines. <laughs> so. Yeah, and that's one of the battles in our, our clinic even. A lot of patients will call and say, oh, I, I, I want to come in for acupuncture, but it's not covered by my insurance. So I said, well, I mean, a lot of times, um, you know, things that are really good for you, um, I, I mean, it's 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 maybe going to be in 10 or 20 more years where it'll catch up. But, you know, they're starting to, some of the policies are starting to cover acupuncture and other things. But uh, if you wait for that to happen, then you're going to be waiting a long time. <laughs> Yeah. And then also, what is that saying? You know, what that's saying is I cannot take care of my health because daddy, in whatever form that would be, the government, your health insurance plan, whatever, because daddy's not paying. And therefore, I am powerless to change my situation. And that is never, ever true. And I just want to say that loud and clear. My colleague, Dr. Kelly Brogan, just is a psychiatrist in Manhattan. She gets women off psych meds all the time with dietary change. And she has just published a case study of a woman who had manic depressive illness, uh, was literally on the street, who managed to collect cans and bottles enough to take her online course and completely reversed her psychiatric illness, which everyone also says is not treatable. So there you go. Where there's a will, there's a way. And when you connect with your divine power, your divine birthright, the non-physical part of you that's guiding your life, then miracles can happen. And to do that, though, you've got to realize that you are far more powerful to attract the people, places, and things that can heal you. You're far more powerful than you ever thought possible. And that's an important piece uh, of my own prescription. It's, uh, and I think that it is, it's now getting out there where the CDC, you know, now says, well, the first line of treatment for PCOS is diet and lifestyle. And that was so refreshing when I read that. I said, oh, thank goodness they finally said it, <laughs> you know, but, you know, it's one thing to say it and then it's, then you have to implement it. And, and this is why it takes, it really does take a village to even, you know, work with a syndrome like this and also women's health in general. I mean, it's, it's, it's just uh, sometimes not an easy thing for, for someone to get started with. Um, and it starts with just lifestyle, like, you know, recognizing, I think, people in your life, too, that that are causing you stress, environmental stress in general. Um, we, we have a, a lot of our patients who just feel like they're taking on the world. And I just don't see that they have they don't put themselves first. I really I just see that over and over and over again. Um, and I know there's a lot of practitioners that are listening to this as well, you know, as, as women with PCOS. And 
I mean, for, for the practitioners out there that are helping women with PCOS, what advice would you give them as far as a starting place? Well, it's interesting that my latest book, you know, Dodging Energy Vampires is about exactly that because so many women are, if you're, if you're empathic and you take on the emotions of others and you tend to hold weight because you're, you're, you're doing one of two things. You're either uh, carrying extra weight to, as armor so that you don't have to feel so much, or you're taking on the weight of a relationship that's not yours. In other words, you're carrying more responsibility. That would be abdominal fat, uh, you know, the apple-shaped figure, more responsibility than is yours to take on. So the first thing that you need to do is help people realize that if you are a sensitive soul, a highly sensitive person or an empath, chances are very good. You feel what's wrong in your family situation. And therefore you take responsibility for what's wrong and try to fix it for everyone else. So you need to be given permission to stop doing that. And the first time you stop doing that, you will feel guilty because the energy vampires in your life actually exist by making you feel guilty. They don't want to pick up the slack. They want you to do it. And they do it by making you feel like you're not good enough. You're not doing enough. You're not worth it. I remember uh, back um, back in the day, I felt guilty telling my husband. Now, remember, we were both surgeons. I felt guilty telling my husband that I was getting a massage because I didn't want him to know that I was paying for it. So that's how bad it can get. You don't think you're worthy. You will give your money and time to someone else, but giving it to yourself and yourself, by the way, is the only jurisdiction over which you have control yourself. So, so think of your own body. And by the way, this goes to the practitioners too, because we're some of the worst. (laughs) So you got to think about your own body. Your own life is your jurisdiction. And you want to check in with your higher self, just check in is rescuing this patient or this family member. Is this in my jurisdiction? Do I have this agreement with their soul? And about 99.9% of the time, you don't. So you're taking on extra and then all the excess cortisol uh, comes as a result of carrying more than your share. And quite frankly, women have been doing this for 5,000 years because we've been told we are second class citizens and we don't count. Because remember, women only got the right to vote in the U.S. in 1920. And in many other countries, they can't even go outside and get vitamin D. I mean, come on, if you are constantly cloaked and wearing a burqa, what do you think the vitamin D levels are of these women? I mean, that's kind of horrifying to me when I think about just the health effects of sunlight on the skin. And so and and so therefore, any woman who puts herself First, knowing that this is the only jurisdiction in which she can have control is actually reversing a tide that is thousands of years old. And over time, she will find that she's healing herself. She's healing her family. She's healing her past. But at first, 
They won't like it. And I guess I'd like women, I want to give women permission to disappoint others. You know, let me disappoint you. And it's going to feel bad. And then in time, here's what you're going to find, which is what I've found. I have two daughters and I have a second granddaughter on the way. And I have my own life that's very, very separate from my daughters and from my granddaughters. And because I've reinvented myself, because I've put myself first, because I've done what it is I tell others to do, I now serve far more as a beacon of possibility to my daughters than what often happens with women, which is they have de-selfed themselves. They have paid attention to everyone else but themselves. And when they hit menopause or they get to be 50, 55, 60, they can become a problem for their family because they've never figured out who they are or who their life belongs to. And therefore they become a problem because they always want to get in on what their kids are doing. It's extraordinarily important to have your own circle of influence, to have your own aura filled with the golden light of your own soul. It's just, it's just essential, but at first it's very very difficult to take that first step because you will be called selfish. It'll make you feel terrible. And just remember, that's the, that's the low self-esteem of so many women and certainly the low self-esteem of empaths who have a tremendous amount of light and a tremendous amount of low self-esteem simultaneously. I, I can definitely, definitely hear a lot of, um, of my colleagues too saying, well, I, I just, you know, we stayed on the phone for an hour and I gave all these free things and free this and, free, and just giving away everything. No, we've got it. We can't. We just have to stop that. And what you find is the people who who charge the most and who take care of themselves and all that generally are thriving. You know, but we always think, oh, God, you know, let's give till it hurts. I, I love the Abraham Hicks quote. You can't get sick enough to help those who are sick and you can't get poor enough to help those who are poor. But if you get healthy and you become financially replete, then you've got something to give. But you've got nothing to give if you're just a cinder somewhere alongside the road. (laughs) (laughs) And and I guess that's the practice of non of nonviolence. It begins with ourselves. I mean, and and women and uh, to to be to be kind to ourselves, I think. I mean, over and over. I I know it sounds sounds cliche or it sounds like it'd be common sense, but it's just uh, every day we see it. And, you know, what can we do that is going to be a disruption? that will be so beneficial for your energy and your cortisol and all the things that that are going wrong, you know? Yeah, well, that's, um, you know, Karen Brody has a wonderful new book called Daring to Rest. And uh, Karen is the author of uh, a book called Daring to Rest, but also she did a play called Birth that I participated in on Labor Day in New York City years and years ago. And the, the play was all about our power to birth in the way our bodies want to birth. And one of the lines in the play that I always always loved was, I want what my dog got. In other words, when a dog's in labor, you know, you don't have a bunch of people examining them. You don't have a bunch of lights. You're not pulling out the puppies with forceps. You know, none of those things. You just leave the dog alone. And uh, but now the thing she's working on, which I love, is rest with yoga nidra. 
And she said that when women dare to rest, deep, deep rest, then we replenish ourselves, we replenish our bone marrow. But, you know, imagine what it takes where you say to your family, I'm going into my little rest cave. Don't bother me for 30 minutes. But you've got to start practicing that, putting yourself first, because when you are when you are replenished with joy, with pleasure, you're much more fun to be around than a cranky, bitchy woman who just uh, is burning the candle at both ends because she has been told that's what a good woman, an ideal woman does. And I'm, I'm laughing. There's a woman named Alison Armstrong who wrote a great book called The Queen's Code and has an online course called Understanding Men. And she said, what women do, we have inside of us an ideal woman. What would an ideal woman do? And she said, this is a weapon of mass destruction because not only do we judge ourselves and other women by this internalized ideal woman, we judge men as failures because they don't rise to the occasion and act like an ideal woman would. (laughs) Uh I kind of love that, you know, like we keep thinking an ideal woman would have an impeccable house. She wouldn't have any clutter. She would make organic lunches for her kids. I, I had a friend who was once visiting and her son's Montessori school called her. I kid you not. In Texas, they called her and yelled at her because the bread for her son's sandwich was not on whole wheat. It was on sourdough white bread. She hadn't had time to go out and buy whole wheat bread. And they called her to call her on that. And I said, get your kid out of that school as soon as you can, because that is being run by food Nazis. You can't be having that kind of pressure on you when you're also working 80 hours a week to try to put food on the table. So one day you don't have the right bread and they call you. See this, we got to stop this. That's just bullshit, right? <laughs> yeah, we're calling, yes. I, and I mean, I could, I could definitely identify with that is that, you know, the, the pressure on women every single day, um, I think it affects, it definitely affects our circadian rhythms, sleep, cortisol, all of it. And I think I mean, our hormones make cortisol. So for, for depleted, I mean, we see it in saliva uh, testing that we do and uh, hormone testing um, that everything's just at zero. So how can you give when you don't have any, the tanks empty, you know? That's right. Yeah. And so what happens, you know, I I said long ago that um, illness is the only acceptable form of Western meditation. So what if we had the courage to move way upstream and brag Now, I brag if I need to sleep 10, 12 hours, I brag about it. I brag about it. But, you know, I was sleep deprived in a sleep macho culture for many, many years. I mean, we doctors were never supposed to sleep. We were never supposed to have a need. We were never supposed to eat. We should be, as one of my teachers said, you should be up all night smoking out problems. This is not human. No one can do that. But again, we expect ourselves to do that. So to reverse it, 
and to reverse PCOS so that you're in this wonderful rhythm with the moon. What does the moon do? It waxes and it wanes. What does nature do? We have nighttime rest time and then we have wake up time. I mean, just go along. Your body is imbued with the wisdom of nature. Pay attention to it. You know, as a, a practitioner of traditional Chinese medicine, that the liver begins to detox at 10 at night. So being in bed by 10 at night to help your liver detox is a wonderful practice. Just all of these, all of these little things that you can do, getting up in the morning, drinking a warm glass of water with lemon. Again, a liver detox. The liver is necessary to metabolize the excess stress hormones and also the excess uh, estrogen in estrogen dominance. Uh, it would be very helpful to have a 12-hour fast every day to bring the insulin levels down to zero. That's so simple. You don't eat after seven at night and you don't eat till seven in the morning. That's a 12 hour fast, completely doable and life changing. So you start with something little that you can do, but what do we women do? Cause of the ideal woman in our head, you got to do everything yes. and also be a size six. Yes. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> exactly. I've kind of given up. I'm never going to be the weight I was in college, nor do I want to be. I was, I was, a, I was, I was before children. I was a different, you know, different person even, and, and not in control of my hormones. So, you know, we, we evolve. And I think that, you know, giving women permission, like everybody today has that permission to just, to, to go and, and, you know, start, start making those decisions in your life. And, and it's cumulative. I mean, it maybe doesn't have to be everything all at once, but just having, you know, permission to go to sleep early without having to make the lunches for the next day and doing all the, you know, so many things that can be delegated. I think, um, it's, it's so important. Yeah. And also, by the way, if you want to have kids with character, you get them to do stuff like this is part of what has to happen here in the house. And then it, it, it breeds kids with character. Uh, you know, Sting, the singer, has come to Maine many times. He likes it here because it reminds him of his childhood and teenagehood where he got up before dawn with his father to deliver milk. And he said from that moment on, he always gets up before dawn and he likes it in Maine because it's very much like England. So that's discipline. He, you know, he's world famous now. He would never have to do that. But he does it because it is a character building discipline, like making your bed every morning that was instilled in him as a young boy. We can do the same thing for our children. I think we do too much for our children in general. Yes. And it starts with us. So um, I just, I think this is uh, such wonderful information and um, I just can't thank you enough for sharing your time with us. And um, we are going to be posting the links to the Dodging Energy Vampires book that we talked about. Uh, and when is the Women's Wisdom New Edition coming out that you said? Well, that's going to that's going to be a while. So the <laughs> okay. old edition is still very relevant. Um, you know, I'm not exactly sure when that's coming out. Probably, you know, the Pluto return of the United States 2020, something <laughs> of that nature. <laughs> <laughs> There's yeah. still most of the information, the wisdom part of women's bodies, women's wisdom is forever eternal and relevant. Uh, it's just some of the dietary stuff I want to put in the, oh, I want to put in stuff on jade eggs for the pelvic floor and uh, stuff about sugar and insulin 
that has been updated. And then all of my initial feeling about mammograms has been uh, definitely vindicated. I've never had one of those. I never will. Um, but again, that doesn't mean there isn't a place for it. It's just that I know it too often disease screening will diagnose something you would die with, but never die from. And once you've got that diagnosis, it begins to work in your brain like a worm. And then you begin to think that something's wrong, you know, like ductal carcinoma in situ, which is not cancer. And so we've had literally tens of thousands of women have uh, prophylactic mastectomies that didn't need them. Uh, you know, I watched a I looked at a at an interview with a breast surgeon and she said, well, we haven't changed the approach to DCIS in 40 years because we've had such amazing success. And I thought, of course, you've had success treating something that never needed to be treated in the first place. So, anyhow, you know, yeah, God, we gave radiation, chemo and surgery to women who didn't need it. Anyway, yes, yeah, we could we could have a whole nother hour conversation about yeah. this. You know, but anyhow, yes. yeah, that's, that's um, the book's still very relevant. Yes, <laughs> it's it's still ahead of its time. Given yeah, that's true. It is. <laughs> well, thank you so much, and, uh, and please, um, you know, make sure that you guys post questions in our Facebook group, and um, we'll definitely invite Dr. Northrop back again. We have a lot to talk about. If she's willing to do that, it would be wonderful. And, um, and I hope everyone has a wonderful week. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Dr. Norfolk. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that's the end of this episode of the PCOS Revolution podcast. If you've enjoyed the show and want to help me spread the word about how women with PCOS and hormonal imbalances can lead happier, more healthier lives, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to have a question answered on the show or would like to recommend a guest, please go to floridacompletewellness.com slash podcast. If you're on social media, you can follow me at facebook.com slash floridacompletewellness and twitter.com slash floridacomplete, where I post a lot of interesting research, webinars, and articles on our blog about really getting to the root of hormonal imbalances like PCOS. So it's a great way to stay in touch with the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening and see you soon. Mm-hmm.